Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Lizzie Borden is a popular lady these days, it seems. Television shows, movies, and books continue to capture the public's fascination with this famous female killer. Most of us assume she was the murderer. And on that assumption, we also know she used a hatchet to kill her father and stepmother. We all know that the murder happened a long time ago, August 4, 1892, to be specific. But did she really do it? And if so... What motivated her to do what she did? Joining me today is Joseph Conforti, a native of Fall River, where everything went down 123 years ago. He wrote a spellbinding book called Lizzie Borden on Trial, Murder, Ethnicity, and Gender, published by the University of Kansas and now available on Amazon.com. Thank you so much, Joe Conforti, for chatting with me today. As you are from Fall River, Massachusetts, which is where this most famous of American murders took place, what was it like living under the cloud of Lizzie Borden all of your life? Well, Lizzie Borden has been in my bones. I'm uh, now 70 years old, and I've never been able to shake the fact that I come from Lizzie Borden's hometown. In fact, that's how I came to write the book. I've written a number of books on New England and during all those years of my professional career when I was writing on New England, I never, never gave Lucy Borden a single thought as a, as a possible subject for a book. But I was in uh, Athens, Georgia, of all places, uh, having dinner with a friend who had just retired from the University of Georgia, and a colleague of his came along, and the colleague happens to edit a series on uh, landmark legal cases in American society. And when he asked me what I, what I was working on, I said, well, I just published a memoir of growing up in Fall River, Massachusetts. Sure. And as soon as he heard, as soon as he heard Fall River, Massachusetts, his eyes widened, and he said, do a book for me on Lizzie Borden. And that's how I came to, uh, to write the book. So that's, that's a story that just illustrates that if, if you are from Fall River, People know anything about your city. They knew it was Lizzie Borden's hometown. Right. And it was that connection that we lived with, that uh, Lizzie Borden hovered over the identity of our city and hovered over the identity of our lives and, in fact, gave us something of an inferiority complex. You spend the beginning of your book setting the scene for the murder. Part of it includes a vivid description of Fall River in 1892. What was it like back then? Well, Fall River had mushroomed over about three decades. In fact, over the first three decades of Lizzie's life, up to the crime in 1892. She was born in 1860. And during those years, Fall River had mushroomed from a mill village 
into an industrial behemoth. It really became the largest manufacturer of cotton cloth in the country, coarse cotton cloth, gray cloth that needed to be bleached before it could be printed. So that in Fall River, you had mills that produced the cloth, bleacheries that made it ready for printing, and printing mills that then took care of the coloring of the, of the cloth. So there were these huge mill complexes, including not far from her home, um, the scene of the crime, and um, there were all these smokestacks that were spewing soot into the air. So it was like, like London in the 19th century, where, where the soot filled the sky, and it was sort of something that people accepted as part of the prosperity of the, of the city. In fact, when the city incorporated in 1856, it adopted a seal, and the, uh, the seal of the city shows smokestacks spewing smoke over the city. Lizzie Borden lived with her father and stepmother, of course her eventual victims. What kind of family were the Bordens, and what was Lizzie's relationship to her parents? Well, the other member of the family was her 40-year-old sister. And what had happened was that Lizzie's mother died when she was a little over two years old, and her sister, who was nine years older, was 11. His sister had vivid memories of her mother, and Lizzie Borden didn't. And as they grew, particularly into adulthood, they began, became increasingly concerned about their inheritance. And there was an incident that occurred, a major incident that occurred in 1887, which I discuss in the book, which deepened their suspicions about their stepmothers manipulating their father behind their backs to arrange financial affairs that might benefit her and diminish the prospects of Lizzie and her sister, or perhaps even uh, cut them out of Andrew's will. So during the five years before the murder, 1887 to 1892, family affairs got, got more tense. Toxic is perhaps too strong a word, but certainly there was more dysfunction in the household. There was more suspicion. There was more animosity and, and resentment. And as testimony emerged at the trial, it became clear that the sisters would try not to eat with the parents whenever, whenever they could. So th that's just a brief description of some of the problems that were present in the, in the family. Now, as I say in the book, whether those problems were sufficient to cause Lizzie or Lizzie in conspiracy with something else, somebody else to commit such a heinous, brutal crime as a double murder of her father and her stepmother, uh, that is, that's another question. If you don't mind, walk us through the day, August 4th, 1892. Well, um, we probably want to go through that in a, in, in a couple of questions because it can, be, can get overly, overly detailed. The book does lay out that day in the third chapter, and I'm going to try not to uh, summarize that whole, whole chapter. The father had a daily uh, custom of going down to Main Street, which was only one block away, where he owned a considerable amount of property. He also owned the crowning achievement of his career, which was a beautiful new building that had opened two years before he was murdered, and with his name, name on it, the A.J. Borden Building. And then he would go to banks, where he was, he was a director or where he collected money from stock that he owned in the bank or stock that he owned in, in, in the mill. So he would, during the morning, have all of this business activity on, on Main Street. So he left sometime after 9 o'clock, after breakfast, after doing their morning bathing. There were no bathrooms in the house. There was a uh, water closet in the cellar. 
So they would take water up to their rooms and they would, they would bathe there. So he left uh, sometime after nine o'clock. No one saw him. No one saw him leave. The other member of the household was the, the, the Irish servant, Bridget Sullivan. And she, she finished cleaning up from breakfast and she was ill and she ran into the backyard for a time and, and threw up and stayed out there for a little while um, before she came back into the house. Mrs. Mrs. Borden had asked her to clean the windows on the house that day. So she left the house to start gathering her material, her, her tools and her water and uh, washing, washing the windows of the house. So the only one who was home at the time that the, the stepmother was killed was Lizzie. At the trial, the theory of the defense was that there was plenty of time when the servant was on the opposite side of the house where, from the side door, and Lizzie might have been preoccupied down in the basement for someone to sneak into the house and kill Abby on the second floor and then hide in the closet, wait for Andrew to come home and slaughter Andrew and then sneak out without anybody, anybody seeing him. Of course, the police didn't buy that, nor did the prosecution. But that's the theory that has, that has been used all of these years to try to explain what happened if Lizzie wasn't the one who committed the murders. Andrew, the, the father, came home uh, about a quarter to 11. The, the mother was slain sometime between 9 and 10 o'clock because she, we, we know that she went upstairs to the guest room to straighten it out sometime after, shortly after 9 o'clock. Andrew came home, and he was tired. He had been sick for a few days, and he stretched out on a chair, sort of a couch in the so-called sitting room. And the uh, assailant waited until he dozed off, and then hit him with, with 10 blows. Abby had been hit with 19 blows. So the, so the children's rhyme of uh, 40 wax is, is completely, completely off. You know, Lizzie Borden took an ax, gave her mother 40 wax, and when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Right. So it wasn't quite as brutal as the famous rhyme describes and as most people believe. But that's so. So then Lizzie had been out in the barn, she claimed, while her father was being killed. And she came in, discovered her father's body, and then called for the servant who had been resting on the third floor. The servant was in the house at the time the father was killed, but the servant was up on the third floor. And then things just mushroomed from, from that. Uh, word spread, the police were called. The police began to invade the house. Uh, the crime scene wasn't secured, so reporters, neighbors, and family friends uh, had access to the house. Some of them even trekked blood from, from the guest room uh, around the house. So that, that was a blunder that, that the police made that they were never able to live down. They failed to secure the crime scene. So that you know, in a kind of outline fashion is what what happened that day. Of course, I go into more detail to give give people uh, a, a better texture of what the day was actually actually like, sure. even going down to what the climate was that on that on that August day in a city that was known for its humidity. Was Lizzie the only suspect at the start of the investigation, would you say? And were the police focused on her from the very beginning? Oh, no. No, no, no. In fact, uh, the city had been changing as it uh, mushroomed into this uh, industrial behemoth. Thousands of immigrants came into the city. So uh, immediately the police thought that a man must have committed this crime and most likely it was uh, was an immigrant and in fact the first person arrested not that far from the crime in a in a bar room 
was a was a Portuguese immigrant who didn't speak English. The three major uh, immigrant groups in Fall River were the Irish, the French Canadians, French from from Quebec, and um, and the Portuguese. And the Portuguese were sort of at the bottom of the to- totem pole. So it's not surprising that a Portuguese immigrant was the first one arrested. One of the things I do in the book is to talk about the way in which the Lizzie Borden case became a flashpoint for tensions between uh, the immigrant communities and the Yankee or old-time English families like the Bordens who controlled the city and who found them their political control being challenged by immigrants who were surging toward a majority. So um, the, the initial suspicion gravitated toward the immigrant communities and toward someone of the male, male gender. On the evening of the crime, the police discovered that someone not only fit Lizzie's description, but that two people identified as Lucy Borden attempted to buy deadly prussic acid in a drugstore several blocks from the Borden house. Um, there were two witnesses in the, in the, in the drugstore that identified the person as Lucy Borden. So word got around the city that Lucy Borden had tried to buy poison. And so that's when suspicion began to gravitate toward her. Uh, I should say also that the police pursued a lot of leads, including leads outside of the city in, in Rhode Island, uh, in Massachusetts, other parts of Massachusetts, as far away as Boston. Uh, they even went to Albany, New York, where there was um, a man who had worked for, for Andrew Borden and who had embezzled some money and left, you know, not on the best of terms. So the police were pursuing leads uh, and doing investigation around the neighborhood and in other communities, but they came up empty-handed. And so it's by the end of the first day that suspicion moves from the immigrant community to Lizzie Borden herself. And part of that was the result of the ambiguous and contradictory statements that Lizzie made to police on the day of the murders, sort of crowned by the discovery of the effort to buy prussic acid the day before the murders. Did the prosecution believe in the certainty of a guilty verdict? And what was the strategy for the defense going into the trial? Let's start with the prosecution for a moment first. The case was handled by the attorney general, state attorney general. Uh, But he managed to get out of it because he he hadn't been well. In fact, he'd been seriously ill, and his doctor didn't want him to try a a big case that would be uh, very, very demanding to prosecute. The district attorney then uh, assumed the burden of prosecuting her with the assistance of the district attorney from another part of the state. The district attorney didn't want to prosecute her. In fact, the correspondence between the attorney general and the district attorney made clear that the district attorney was convinced that he couldn't get a conviction, uh, even though he believed that she was probably guilty. So in the end, he had to become a reluctant prosecutor. And he and his co-prosecutor did mount a, uh, an aggressive case, but uh, there were things that happened along the way that undermined their, uh, their strategy. The best that the attorney generals could hope for was a hung jury, and particularly the attorney general, the lead attorney general, attorney general of Bristol County where the crime occurred, he hoped that a hung jury would placate both sides. Lizzie would go free but she wouldn't be off the hook. If new evidence emerged, then there was still the opportunity to indict her and try her um, again. But the court didn't want hung jury for reasons that I go into in in the book. And the court intervened 
at strategic points in the trial when the case, when the prosecution seemed to be mounting an effective case, the court intervened to sort of undermine, uh, in some cases, even block key parts of the prosecution case. So, so that in an outline is what happens with the prosecution. As far as the defense goes, their strategy was really interesting. What they tried to do was to mount evidence of suspicious people lurking around the Borden property on the morning of the murders to raise the possibility that someone entered the house and committed the deadly crime without anybody without without anybody seeing him seeing him actually uh, go into the house and come out so all they had to do was to plant doubt they, they had to plant seeds of doubt that this could have happened and they had to also argue and and show how given Lizzie Borden's public profile I call her a Protestant nun I call her Fall River's most prominent Protestant nun, it would have been morally and indeed physically impossible for her to commit those crimes which cracked open the skulls of the two victims. And there was another part of their strategy that was really interesting. Uh, They focused on the murder of Andrew because Andrew was Lizzie's father, whereas Abby was only her stepmother. And so that was the real act of patricide. She was killing her own blood. And so it was sort of shocking and even inconceivable that a woman of Lizzie's background could commit such a crime. Shocking and inconceivable to to many people, including the jurors who were selected in an, in an interesting way. Now, particularly gruesome to me was the evidence offered to the court in the form of the victim's heads. Can you tell us about that? Well, the attorney general ordered the doctors not to not to bury the bodies until they preserved the skulls, because the skulls would be evidence that would be presented in court. The hope was that they would find the murder weapon and that they would be able to match up the murder weapon with at least some of the blows, the cuts into the skulls of the victims. So Andrew and Abby were beheaded. Uh, their heads were boiled and the skin was, was shrunk and pulled off their skulls. Plaster models of the skulls were made for use in court. But at one juncture in the trial, the prosecution needed the actual skulls, particularly Andrew's skull, um, because they were able to match up some marks on the skull, some blows to the skull with a broken hatchet that was found in the Borden's cellar. Abby's head was so smashed from 19 blows, well, 18 actually, one hit her upper back, that her, her skull was virtually useless in court. But Andrew had some blows that matched perfectly the blade of a, of a broken hatchet that was found in the, in the basement. So when a couple of doctors got up there with the skulls and they began passing them around and showing them to the jury. And Lizzie knew this was going to happen in an afternoon session. And for that afternoon session, she was excused from the court and sat out in a little corridor with a sheriff and just listened to the testimony rather than, you know, observing her father's head passed around the court and, and shown before the jury. We will be back after a brief word from our sponsors. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. 
Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. What was Lizzie's demeanor like in court? I assume this trial got a lot of national press. Yes, that's one, that's one of the ways it's uh, truly significant for American history. I mean, one of the things that I had to do was to make a justification for why this was more than just a local murder story, a murder mystery, some said. I had to, well, let me put it this way. My editor said to me, why Lizzie Borden? In other words, why is Lizzie Borden important for American history? And the question you've just uh, raised gets right to the heart of one of the reasons why it's important for American history, namely that the media, newspapers and magazines, ginned up and then catered to a national audience that became enthralled with the case. This was the the era of publishing just before the term yellow journalism was called to describe the sensationalism in the Hearst and Pulitzer papers in, in New York. But all the practices of sensational yellow journalism were present before uh, the term was actually coined. The newspapers were mostly in, uh, in favor of Lizzie. They believed that she was, she was innocent. Of course, in New England, many of the papers were controlled by the Yankees, by the native-born who traced their ancestry back to the earliest myths of, of colonial history. So Lizzie, uh, Lizzie's lawyers gave her some good advice about how she should behave in court. For one thing, they told her to dress in black as if she were still mourning. Not only did she dress in black, but she dressed in this flowing black outfit. And one of the effects it had was to make her look smaller than she actually was, especially when in the Victorian style, her waist was tightly corseted. So she sat there in black with a different bouquet of flowers each day and she behaved like a proper Victorian woman, like a virtuous Victorian woman, like a woman who possessed neither the physical strength nor the moral 
degeneracy to commit the kind of crime that she was accused for. And she was, you know, at, at strategic moments in, in the trial, she, she did things that only, only seemed to confirm this identity of hers as a virtuous Victorian woman. For, for example, after the prosecution finished its opening statement, she fainted. And the court was left murmuring and people rushed, rushed to her with, with water and smelling salts. She showed emotion from time to time, uh, and, um, she, but she behaved mostly in a very, very dignified way. So I, I guess one of the things that I say is that the court was controlled by men. The judge, three judges were men. The jury was all male. Her, her three lawyers were male, and a couple of them were big men, by the way, which made her look small. Uh, the two prosecutors were male. So it was an all-male court, but Lizzie wasn't a helpless maiden. She only had to present herself that way. And that's one of the arguments I tried to make as we go through the trial. Once Lizzie Borden was acquitted, what happened afterwards? Was she able to lead a normal life? No, no, far from it. Let, let, me, let me first say that... Um, she, she didn't live on the right side of town. Her father was very wealthy. He would have been a multi-multi-millionaire today. But he was sort of a creature of habit. And as I said, his business interests were all on Main Street. And he was sort of determined, he was approaching 70, to stay where he was. Lizzie wanted to live about a half a mile away in what was called the Hill. That was a, a leafy, lofty neighborhood that had been created by the well-to-do people mostly in the decades after the Civil War. That's when they built Cape Ann and Colonial Revival-style houses and mansions. These were the mill owners, the mill investors, the mill treasurers, the mill agents, and all the professional class that, that serve the, the property classes of, uh, of Fall River. That was where she wanted to live. So it's not surprising that Three weeks after her acquittal, she purchased a house on the hill, and she thought she would live this quiet life of respectability, just like she had before. She was engaged in a variety of social and religious activities, most of them rooted in the Central Congregational Church, so that she hoped to return to, to that life in a spacious house on the hill. And it never happened. She was, um, in part, shunned on the hill. And she became very, very sensitive both to people who were shunning her and to um, the perception that people were shunning her or not treating her the way they used to treat her with respect because she came from a family of wealth and because she was such an active member of the Central Congregational Church. So she attended a couple of services after she took a short vacation after the trial, and she felt that she was unwelcome. So she stopped going to the Central Congregational Church, or to any church for that matter. The kids wouldn't let her alone. Uh, they would uh, throw rocks at her house. They would tie the doors. They would yell names from out in the street. They would do various acts of, of mild vand vandalism, and the police seemed unable to quash this kind of activity. So increasingly, Lizzie led a private life, and she sought her escape uh, by traveling to uh, other cities, Providence, Rhode Island, Boston, um, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, and she loved the theater, so she would go to the theater she would stay at the best places and she would eat at the best eat at the best restaurants and that was sort of her diversion from the way she seemed to be unwelcomed in in Fall River so despite the fact that she was acquitted it was assumed during this time that a woman couldn't commit a crime of this vicious nature but once she was freed and attempted to create this life for herself 
She was shunned by the community. Did that mean that deep down in their hearts, most people believed that she murdered her parents? Well, she was shunned by some of the community, including some of the women he had, she had worked with in Central Congregational, Central Congregational Church. And then she began to imagine slights, you know, because of the way she felt unwanted by some people. I, I would say, well, let me put it this way. At, when she was acquitted, um, the women at the trial stood up and, be sh- and began shaking white handkerchiefs. It was a triumph. And she triumphed in the, in the, in the most of the press as well. The overwhelming press at the, tri- at the trial believed justice was, was done. It, you know, it's hard to tell what exactly people felt. It seems that part of the problem was that she had brought scrutiny, unwanted scrutiny, on Fall River, on well-to-do families on Fall River, on, on the Central Congregational Church, so that she was responsible for, for changing things. The ground had shifted after all the notoriety. I would say, secondly, while she was acquitted, I think it is safe to say that some people were relieved that she wasn't going to jail, but at the same time were not convinced that her hands were completely clean. And then there were probably those people who dared to think that a woman of this background and of this seeming moral integrity and religious commitment could possibly have committed the crime, or at least committed the crime in a conspiracy with, with someone else. So I, I think the feelings toward Lizzie ranged across the spectrum from just the kind of resentment that all of this had occurred and had brought all the scrutiny to those in their heart of hearts that felt that the evidence at the trial even though it wasn't enough to commit her, raised enough questions for them to have doubts. At some point in history, people began to believe that Lizzie did commit the crime. There was a shift in public opinion. When did this change happen? Was there a piece of new evidence that popped up later down the road, or was it more gradual than that? Well, uh, I think in Fall River, it, um, it increasingly shifted toward belief in her guilt because the city became overwhelmingly, you know, immigrants and their offspring. When I was growing up, I'm Portuguese and Italian. I never met a single person during all my years in Fall River who believed that Lizzie was innocent. So I think the first shift took place in Fall River. As far as public opinion, say across the United States, I think the shift began with a a writer in the 1920s and 1930s, a popular writer who became enormously interested in the Lizzie Borden case and thought an injustice had been done. And so he believed in her guilt. Uh, He was a Harvard-trained New York City librarian by the name of Edmund Pearson. And he wrote these true crime books that were very popular in the 1920s and 30s. And he wrote with this kind of relentless belief in her guilt. And he had style. He showed wit. He showed various kinds of humor. And so he was a very entertaining writer. And I think his writing began to shift public opinion toward Lizzie's guilt. He was the first to publish the children's line, 40 Wax, uh, that, I think, helped uh, shift public opinion. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think after Edmund Pearson, most people writing on Lizzie Borden believe that she was guilty. But, you know, there are also, there, there are also a number of people who have written on the case, and I refer to him in my bibliography, bibliographical essay, who have written on the case who try to take it, try to sensationalize the case by claiming to discover that it was actually someone else who committed the crime. And there have been a cast of characters 
including Lizzie's sister, including the maid. Uh, most recently, two writers have claimed that Lizzie's uncle, John Morse, who happened to be staying with the Bordens the night before the murders, that he, w- he was the real butcher. Another writer has claimed that Andrew Borden had an illegitimate son, and Andrew Borden threatened to disown him when he died, and the son killed him before he could be excluded from Andrew Borden's will. So there have been all these theories that, have, that people have tried to be capital, capitalized on the popularity of the case by coming up with new theories about how Lizzie was truly innocent and someone else committed the murders. So that game kind of goes on, and I'm not sure it is ever going to stop. From your research, do you have a guess as to what her motive was in killing her parents? The motive for killing Abby Borden is much clearer than the motive for killing Andrew Borden. The makeup of the household was not quite toxic, but it certainly was a household where there was constant jealousy and suspicion and resentment. So one can develop a motive for Lizzie killing her stepmother, the fear of being excluded from Andrew's will or from being victimized in Andrew's will. In other words, not getting her fair share of uh, his estate. Of course, nobody knew that Andrew had no will at all. The motive for killing her father is difficult. That's why, as I said earlier, the defense seized upon that murder rather than on Abby's murder as the real difficulty in the case. The district attorney said that Lizzie killed her father. She hadn't thought ahead of time. She was so hostile, so embittered toward Abby that she committed that murder in a peak of rage. After all, look at how many blows were struck on the woman, certainly far more than needed to kill her. So after she committed that crime, she was facing her father, who would come home within the next hour or so, and she either feared that he would immediately know that she had done it, or that Lizzie had someone else do it or was, had conspired with someone else to do it. So, his, so the, the prosecutor's argument was that she had no alternative but to kill her father. She hadn't thought ahead about the consequences of killing Abby. She was so enraged and resentful at that point in, in their relationship. That's a bit of a difficult uh, sell. Um, I mean, it's not, it's not unpersuasive, but can we come up with a more persuasive uh, ar- argument for her murdering her father? Well, we could work up one, but it, it is a real challenge. And that's why there are those people who, to this day, believe that she couldn't have killed her father, that she may have had an embittered relationship with her stepmother, but she was on generally decent terms with her father. She had something of a special relationship with her father. In the, in the May before the August murders, the house had to be painted and she told Lizzie to pick the color. She didn't tell Abby. She didn't tell Lizzie's older sister, Emma. She told Lizzie, and Lizzie did choose the, choose the color. So the murder of the father uh, was a very, very naughty issue, and that's why the defense seized on it. Lizzie killed her stepmother first. I wonder if in her head there was this moment of absolute terror and panic, the feeling of, oh no, my father is going to walk in and see this. Maybe he'll feel ashamed or he'll start treating me differently. It's hard to imagine what thoughts flew through her brain at that moment when he entered. Well, I think you put it well. The the prosecutor didn't quite put it that way. What he tried to do do was to draw on examples from literature, from Shakespeare, from Dickens, uh, literary references that would be familiar to people, even jurors who were minimally ed- educated. But, you know, there, there's, a, there's another 
possible explanation, and that is that uh, Lizzie plans to leave the house to establish an alibi, to say she wasn't there when Abby was killed. In fact, someone who claimed to have seen her coming from the bar- uh, barn said she was wearing a, uh, a hat, a, a kind of, um, I guess it was a straw, a straw hat. You never, never could quite precisely describe it, which suggested that maybe she was planning to go out. Of course, this was after the father was killed. But nevertheless, uh, one of the things that happened was the father was, wasn't feeling well, and he came home about an hour before he uh, usually did come home. He came home at quarter to 11 when he usually came home shortly before 12, which was the time for noontime dinner. So she possibly had intended to leave the house and establish an, an alibi that way. Why do you think people still hold such fascination with Lizzie Borden today? Um, that's, a, that's a really good question. I, I think the circumstances of the case always leave a doubt whether Lizzie could have done it. The, the crime was so brutal. It was done in broad daylight. It was done on a busy street, one block over from Main Street. Lizzie had such a, an impressive background of social and religious activity in the city. She was always so proper, like a virtuous Victorian woman in public. So there's always that question of how could a woman like this commit a crime like that? And I think, you know, that is part of the fascination with, with the crime. And that's why there will always be people who will say she didn't do it. My thanks again to Joe Conforti, author of Lizzie Borden on Trial, Murder, Ethnicity, and Gender. Now, the people of Massachusetts, in making their judgments on Lizzie Borden's guilt or innocence, were well aware of another horrible series of murders that had happened just a few years prior to the Borden ones. The defense attorney in Lizzie's trial even mentioned them in his closing arguments. It was a subtle reminder that society does not send women to the gallows. The woman he referred to was Sarah Jane Robinson. Originally from Ireland, Sarah, born Sarah Jane Tennant, came to the U.S. at age 14, along with her nine-year-old sister Annie. They lived with their older brother in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Sarah worked as a dressmaker and became a wife, marrying Moses Robinson and starting a family, eventually raising four children. Sarah and her husband did not live a stable existence. They were habitually late on their rent, chased by debt collectors, and constantly moving to escape their creditors. In 1881, a man named Oliver Sleeper, who served as the landlord for the Robinsons, became ill. When Sarah took over as his caretaker, he died. When Sleeper's relatives came looking for the $3,000 he kept in his home, it was gone. They suspected Sarah, but had no proof. Then in 1882, her husband Moses suddenly died. She collected $2,000 in insurance money from the Order of Pilgrim Fathers, a social group that provided inexpensive life insurance for the laboring class. After her husband's death, her sister Annie and Annie's husband, Prince Freeman, came to stay with her. Within the year, both Annie and Prince were also dead, and Sarah was another $4,000 richer when she collected the insurance she'd placed on them. From that point on, things really turned disturbing. Sarah's four children, along with her sister's son, proved costly to raise. Her 10-year-old daughter, Emma, died in 1884, followed by her nephew two years after that. Her daughter, Lizzie, preparing to marry, suddenly got sick and was gone a few weeks later. Sarah told an acquaintance that she dreamt that Lizzie came back from the dead to collect her little brother, Willie. Sure enough, Willie was soon dead too. 
Willie's sickness finally proved suspicious enough to representatives of the Order of Pilgrim Fathers, and they sent their own doctor to Sarah's house, too late to save him. Just before Willie's passing, however, the doctor sent a sample of his vomit to a Harvard chemist who tested it positive for arsenic. The pilgrims notified police, and Sarah Jane Robinson was arrested. After this explosive news, the police exhumed the rest of the bodies of Sarah's landlord, husband, children, sister, and brother-in-law, and determined arsenic poisoning as the cause of death for all of them. Eventually, she would be charged with the murders of all and convicted and sentenced to death by hanging, with their date of execution set on November 16, 1888. However, as the date grew closer, public sentiment turned to her favor, and one day before she was set to swing, the governor of Massachusetts commuted her sentence to life in solitary confinement. And it was there that she would live until her death 18 years later. So Sarah Robinson's trial was fresh in the minds of everyone involved in Lizzie's trial. Could Lizzie have been inspired by Sarah Robinson? She had attempted to buy poison herself, according to witnesses. She had also seen the public turn sympathetic to Sarah Robinson, and it certainly would have given her hope in her own trial. And in her case, that hope became reality when Lizzie Borden was set free and allowed to live her life with her father's money to keep her comfortable. So that's that for this episode of Most Notorious. I hope you enjoyed it. For more history, go find my books at Amazon.com. The Big Myth and Ill Fame. Historical novels written amidst the corruption of Mayor Doc Ames in 1901 Minneapolis. A hell of a lot of fun, let me state for the record. Good day, and see us latest.